Welcome to the Scaredy Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Schwenninger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing, subscribe to our podcast, leave us a lovely five-star review, and follow us at SerengetiSec on Twitter. Should actually check that at some point. Yeah, if it hasn't been disabled from failure to log in. <laughs> but we're here to talk about some cybersecurity technology news headlines that hopefully provide some insight and analysis, practical application you can take back into the office to help protect your organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Hey, hey Matt, did you hear about the latest disinformation information campaign from the Ukraine war? No. There's a picture making the rounds of Putin and Zelensky holding hands and sharing a milkshake. Two cup, one straw. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, too far. Hey, uh, you know, dear listener, you don't even want to know what we tossed around before the podcast. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> There, there were much more offensive concepts that were brought up in the strategy meeting. <laughs> strategy meeting. <laughs> All right. So the first article is uh, two Russian nationals charged for masterminding the Mt. Gox crypto exchange hack. And this comes to us from the Hacker News. So the U.S. Department of Justice has charged two Russian nationals. I am going to butcher their names, so I'm just going to use their first names. So <laughs> Alexei. And Alexander have been charged with conspiring to launder approximately 647,000 stolen Bitcoins uh, that were taken from Mt. Gox between September 2011 and May of 2014. So just a couple. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah. Well, it was just, it was just enough to actually cause Mt. Gox to become insolvent. And initially, the, the CEO was actually thought to have been guilty. So... Mark Capelles, who was the CEO at the time, was arrested in Japan in 2015 and convicted of data manip manipulation in 2019 and received a two and a half year suspended prison sentence. But he was in cleared of the embezzlement charges, which, you know, is the actual theft of the coin. But what the DOJ says that these, these guys did with their, their ill-gotten gains was found a currency exchange, which is used by the underworld to launder funds. So the crypto, the currency exchange was the BTC-E virtual currency exchange. Uh, but this was shut down by law enforcement in 2017. So they were able to operate for just a couple of years before that was shut down. Yeah. But prior to that, the DOG claims that between March of 2012 and April of 2013, they laundered 300,000 of those stolen Bitcoins through an unnamed New York-based Bitcoin brokerage service. Probably a JP Morgan or somebody like that who's not going to go to jail. <laughs> What's that German bank? Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank. But, it's, uh... but the, you know, I tried to find out exactly how much they would have laundered at that time. But when I tried to go back to find out what the Bitcoin price was at that time, I can, uh, Yahoo was only providing back to October of 2014, at which time... Coin was only $387.43, which means they would have only gotten about $120 million for that 300000 Bitcoin at that time. Shh, nothing. Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> I did, when I was doing some research in this, I, I started at Wikipedia, and they had a link to, in one of their citations, to a company called WizSec, which is a uh, cryptocurrency security company that was active. It still appears to be somewhat active. And they said they did some analysis using 
the mapped transactions since Bitcoin transactions are public and the ledger is public. They started at a point in 2011 where Mark, the owner, stated he had you know X number of Bitcoins in Mt. Gox. And then they used the ledger to count how many were being transferred to and from Mt. Gox's known Bitcoin addresses. Based on this, they created a graph that shows how much Bitcoin Mt. Gox should have had based on you know what they what they said they had and how much they actually had. And they found that by 2014, Mt. Gox was empty of Bitcoin. They were technically insolvent in 2012, but there were a few more the attackers got by 2014. And so when you get every last drop out of it. Yeah, they were apparently doing it several hundred Bitcoin at a time. Just pulling. So so as far as as far as WizSec can hypothesize, Mt. Gox was apparently doing almost no real monitoring of how many Bitcoin they had because the attackers just kept doing it. And at no point did Mt. Gox catch on and stop this. WizSec mentioned that they thought what Mt. Gox was doing was that there was a program that would add coins to a cold wallet wallet automatically and print off the cold wallet. And then it would ask a human to scan the cold wallet back in when the software told them to because it needed more liquidity. And so they were just scanning in those cold wallets whenever the software told them to without really questioning why. But either way, like they were just trusting that the software was maintaining the count. And it was maintaining the count because stuff was being stuffed out. I, I don't know. There's, this is just a huge, absolutely huge failure of accounting here. Yeah, and that seems to be the standard for the, all these <laughs> crypto coin places. Yeah, the, the one that just went up last year, FTX. They didn't even have any idea how much cryptocurrency they had. They're finding cryptocurrency in strange wallets. <sighs> Someone also who worked there mentioned later that they didn't use any kind of version control software. And any changes to the source code had to go through the owner, Mark. He had to manually approve changes to source code, which apparently delayed security patches for weeks at a time. Yeah, if you wanted to go through the correct process. Because if they, if they had no code repository, there was nothing forcing them to go to Mark. You know, they could have just not done it, which means that anybody could have ingested, in, injected whatever they wanted in there. Mm-hmm. Yep. So according to Cointelegraph, they found out that their private keys were compromised in September 2011. WizSec shows the first stolen Bitcoin happening in August 2011. And apparently Mt. Gox reused the addresses commonly, so the thieves kept stealing. I guess they never reissued their private keys. What like, the just, hell? I don't even know. Like, I don't, like, I'm staring at this and I'm like, how is this? What? I don't. Yeah, you know, well, it, it, apparently it's just like FTX where they didn't have any security people as well as no accounting people. Yeah, this whole thing is completely ridiculous. So this was not the first issue with Mt. Gox. The original creator, Jed McAlib, sold it to Mark Karpless in 2011. Apparently in the trial that Mark, when Mark was on trial, he mentioned in a statement that there was already 80,000 Bitcoin missing uh, when it was sold. And they had a, they had a, a bot called Willy that was apparently trying to do some arbitrage stuff to try and make up the missing Bitcoin. And then in June 2011, attackers were able to access the, the auditor's computer. So I guess they had an auditor and they set the Bitcoin price to one cent and were able to buy about 2000 Bitcoin before somebody caught it and fixed it. Apparently other people bought about 650 Bitcoin and listen with that. So, so they had, a, they had, so they had an auditor, but no accountants. I guess. Yeah, I, I couldn't this believe is, that they had an auditor at all. I don't know. 
It's just ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. This whole thing. <laughs> but you know, one of the things that, that is not mentioned in this article about these two guys that were indicted is, where are they? My guess is they're in Russia. And as long as they plan their vacations properly, they'll be fine. I should just get around to laundering the other $6 billion they have in coin before the market implodes. Yeah. So they've, so they've been indicted, but they no idea of where they are or how they're going to get a hold of them. The article didn't <laughs> say, so that's my guess. It's, it's, it's more the, the DOJ, you know, shaking their fist really <laughs> at someone they can't get their hands on. Well, those, I'd have gone away from it too, if not for you. Yeah, exactly. All right. Why does this matter? No, it's interesting. That's good enough. Yeah, but at the time, this heist was huge. I don't yeah, think anybody's. A, yeah. Yeah. As far as the number of Bitcoins taken, this is still, I think, the largest we've seen. Yeah. The, the other one I was looking up was bigger, but it was only bigger because Bitcoin was worth more. It was only like 120,000 Bitcoins at the time. Right. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Next article. Warning. Victims places. Victims faces placed on explicit images and sextortion scam. So if you have anybody, if you have any young kids listening, you may want to skip this one. We're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to be inappropriate here. <laughs> a, lot of, but... a lot of people are introducing cybersecurity to young children with our, with our well, podcast. You know, I, so. this happens to me all the time where I'm listening to a podcast and I get halfway through it and I stop and I go get in the car and it automatically starts again. And I'm like, oh shoot, my daughter's in the backseat. So it's a thing. So anyways, all right. Criminals have combined deep fakes and sextortion. Why bother for someone to make a mistake and leak a video when you can fake it? Victims include both children and adults. So it used to be, I'm sure that a lot of you, a lot of you guys were around, you know, two years ago when sextortion suddenly became huge. Criminals would use leaked emails from various sites. They would send it to users saying, I've got nude pictures from your computer and to prove it, here's your password. This is how you know I've hacked you. I'm watching through your webcam. I've got videos and I'm going to share it with all your friends unless you pay me a Bitcoin. So they've decided that's too much work. So they're using social media. They are getting on your Instagram, your whatever. They're taking pictures of you and they are making those inappropriate pictures and then blackmailing you from there. So this is not, strictly speaking, a business concern yet. Although you are probably going to have, I remember when this extortion thing happened, Folks would email security teams asking like, hey, I just got this email because the leaked email happened to be their work email. Hopefully this will be a lot less common because hopefully people are not using their work email for the social media accounts, but you should mm. keep an eye out for it. You may get questions from employees saying, hey, this thing happened to me. What should I do about it? It happened on a work email. So you should probably, you know, prep some guidance or start thinking about that. <clears throat> but we are entering an era now where anybody is going to be able to make any type of video starring anyone they want. We've talked about this before, so we're not going to dive into a whole lot of detail here, but that's going to have some weird effects on society. I mean, society is, you know, if you really think about society is entirely, and the, well, the concept of society, you know, in, in, the, in the term of human interaction relies on trust. Mm. And if this is another thing that's going to make trusting more difficult, and, and, I, and hopefully there are there are people, technologists and other, others that are thinking about ways to still maintain the trust in an era where you can fabricate image, video, voice, 
all the things that used to be bulletproof evidence or of an individual. Picture it didn't happen. Picture it didn't happen. That's not real anymore. (laughs) Yep. Can't say that anymore. (laughs) Now it's going to be public key cryptography signed or it didn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. It rolls off the tongue a lot. It's not quite as. (laughs) Yeah. Or, you know, I wasn't there, so it didn't happen. Yeah. Not believing anything, you know, only believe your lying eyes and that's it. And we know how effective that is, right? There's been lots of studies over the years about how eyewitnesses are frequently not accurate and our own memories are not accurate. Our our, our brain, when it creates memories, it leaves holes. And then when we recall those memories, it just fills in those holes with whatever things is appropriate. Yeah. We can't trust our memory. We can't trust our eyes. And now we can't trust documents. Yeah. What we thought was evidence or proof can't be trusted. And eyewitness accounts are, are, are often cited as completely unreliable or mostly unreliable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, even though juries seem to think they are, that's not, not terribly accurate. Yeah. And yeah, we've talked before about how, you know, you can no longer trust phone calls anymore because they can be fake. She can't trust. But, but so anyways, the, what's the appropriate response from the victim? Should, should they like post on their social media? Someone's blackmailing them. Will your family and friends believe it? They probably won't for the first couple of times. There's going to be a year or two where people aren't going to, people who aren't as online as we are, are not going to believe that this is possible. They're going to think it's real. And they're going to be like, I can't believe you did this. You're my daughter. You're such a, and it's, it's, it's going to cause a lot of strife. Yeah. And then um, there, you're going to have the opposite effect where people who did the heinous shit got caught at and they'd be like, Hey, that's a deep fake. Not me. Yeah. Uh, well, the FBI, of course, recommends that you simply ignore it. And, but they say, well, they, the FBI says ignore it and then report it to the FBI. I'm like, well, what's the point of that? It's not like the FBI is going to do anything about it. Well, they don't even chase people for stealing $10,000. So if these guys, if these guys blackmail enough people, they'll, they'll hit that limit. And then the FBI might get interested. Maybe if they can, if there, if there's a, if there's an obvious link, possibly. But my guess is they just it's just going to be added to the pile, even if there is a link. They're not going to bother chasing these guys. But I think you sh- I, I, I do agree with them, though, that you should just ignore it. You know, either the people you care about are going to believe you and that, you know, that's not you or they're not. Because you you never pay once. Once you pay, this is you're, you're basically setting up a subscription. You know, they're going to hit you up every month or whatever and say, hey, you know, it's time to pay or I'm going to release that. And eventually you're going to have to either continue to pay for the rest of your life, or you're going to need to bite the bullet and say, well, release it, you know, and I will take the, I will take the brunt of whatever comes from it. All right. We're doing some research for this. I found that most products that do AI generation do prohibit nude, prohibit nude results. But the example of Lenza last year and the hallucinations of chat GPT more recently show how hard it can be just to control the results of these generative models. Linza was an app that was released on the app store. And it turns out you could fool it into doing nude stuff pretty easily. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, you know, older actors, when they're out of their prime, and I'm just thinking about like action heroes, like, you know, Stallone and Schwarzenegger or whatever, if they'll be able to, to sell their, the visual rights to their younger images to movie companies so they can continue to be, you know, action stars or whatever in movies with their younger, with their younger selves. And I was thinking about this because of the the new Indiana Jones movie with Harrison Ford, where there apparently are, based on what I've seen from the trailers, there are several scenes that depict him 
when he was in his 30s that looked really accurate. And, I, and there was a, an interview with him that he was saying, yeah, that is actually me, but they just digitally altered my appearance. I actually acted in that scene, but they digitally altered me to look younger. That'd be interesting. All right. Why does this matter? I mentioned it earlier in the beginning, but if you work in security operations, you're probably going to catch some of this in the near future. Somebody is going to sign up with something at their company email, one of their social media accounts, probably LinkedIn will probably be the one that sees this. That would, I can imagine that would probably be the one where they would see most people being afraid of having things be made public anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. For our final one, public and free Wi-Fi. I've always been asked by my family, you know, should we use public Wi-Fi? And I've always told them, don't use public Wi-Fi. It's evil. I myself <laughs> try not to use it unless I absolutely have to. It's unclean. It's anathema. The changes in how buildings seem to be constructed in the last four or five years and the overall terribleness of 5G have made me question that recently. There's a number of buildings recently in this area where when I go into them, I just do not get service. And then we saw, I saw this article randomly and I was like, oh, maybe it's a time to talk about public and free Wi-Fi again. This is from Malwarebytes. Previously, the author of Malwarebytes had recommended that you don't use public Wi-Fi, but if you have to use a VPN, and now they say that with most sites using HTTPS, it is generally safe, although they wouldn't set up their banking account or you do sensitive, anything sensitive over it. And they still recommend using a VPN. And that was all they said. This headline was about as long as the damned article. It's very informative. This is, I have, there's someone, someone needed to hit their quota. <laughs> it was like, we need to put up an article on the, on the blog today. Uh, but you know what? It's still worth discussing because things may have changed. So this is definitely relevant for business because your traveling employees are going to be using Wi-Fi on their trips. And actually it's funny. We'll talk about it later, but traveling employees seem to be the main targets of this. So threats to employees using Wi-Fi include eavesdropping for sites that are using HTTPS or other unencrypted connections. If somebody is on the Wi-Fi with you and the Wi-Fi is not set up correctly, they can listen in. It's less of a concern now because mostly most sites are using HTTPS. Most, you are, most of the networks are set up such that you can't listen in on your other people on the wire. Yeah, but hopefully, you know, your email client is also set up to use SMTPS uh, simple mail transfer yeah. protocol secure, because if your mail client's running every 15 minutes, it's trying to check for your email. And if that isn't encrypted, then it's possible that you could have your email you've dropped on uh, and yeah, who knows what's in that message because you're receiving it. Some nice foreshadowing there. Other big, big concern here is man in the middling. The easiest way is as an evil twin, although there's some other ways to do it as well where you can man in the middle of the certificate to proxy the connections to listen in or change things in routes. So I think we've seen some fears about this as well. I don't know that I would worry about this in the grocery store, but I think there's probably geographic locations where this is a real concern. And weirdly enough, I wrote this before I did some more research. There are definitely some geographic locations where this is a real concern. Yeah, and, and something else, you know, if you ever try to connect to a free Wi-Fi, and you're forced to go to a web page and they ask you to install a certificate, absolutely do not do that. So, and after, again, after reading this, I was sitting there thinking to myself, I was like, honestly, I don't think I've ever heard of the above attacks occurring to actual real people. Then I wondered just if virtual they just, people? Just virtual people. I wondered if we just never heard of them because they're hard to detect. Like if you're just, if someone's just eavesdropping you or if they're man in the middle lane and just listening in on the connection, maybe you never find out about it. So I did some searching. 
Oh, or I was worried that it was just government actors are the only ones that can afford to perform them since they're so geographically limited. Like they're the only ones who are like, oh, we can compromise, you know, 200 or 800 Wi-Fi's to actually monitor this. So I did some searching and I actually found some actual attacks. May 2016, there was a journalist flying an American Airlines flight who received an email from a hacker who said that they had been eavesdropping and read all of their emails sent and received by most folks on an American Airlines flight who are using the in-flight Wi-Fi. That's probably a pretty decent place. Although again, you know, you can't really do that, at least not locally. Although if you could compromise the Wi-Fi on the airplanes across the board, that would be pretty good. Like the whole fleet? Yeah. Yeah, like if you could if you could figure out like the admin password and go in and set all of them to just, you know, forwards. I don't yeah. Anyways. I found an article that I'm pretty sure is a bullshit article. This is from Travel Pulse. I found an article where Nord VPN was claiming twenty five percent of travelers are hacked on Wi Fi from abroad, but there was no link in there to the actual research. Every link that was clicked just took you to like like a blog post or Nord VPN that didn't have any information. The headline didn't match the contents. The headline said 40%, but the content said 25%. It seemed like it seemed like fake news to me, misinformation. But they did say, they did say that this typically happened at the airport, bus station, or train terminal, which those places would make sense to target if you were going to target somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, 20- they sound like sketchy places. <laughs> can't trust people there. In 2016, an Israeli hacker supposedly took over a Tel Aviv free Wi-Fi network. They were riding the the rail and they saw that there was a new Tel Aviv free Wi-Fi network and they figured out a way to get into the router, the admin panel of the router using a buffer overflow. Mm-hmm. They didn't actually take over the whole thing. They just found a way to do it. And Kaspersky reported at one point and they, there was no link or there was no date to this. So again, suspicious source. But they said they had looked at the 10 busiest malls in America and they found several evil twin networks. So I don't know. Malls That's is not kind terribly of a weird surprising one. either, though. Yeah, but the, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of people focused there, but like you're going to collect, I guess if you're looking for credit cards, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for sensitive business information, less, <laughs> less of yeah. a great target. So I guess this is still a thing that happens. So I guess I'm going to continue to stay off public Wi Fi. Yeah, well, VPNs are relatively inexpensive, you know, 100 bucks a year or something like that. So you should probably have one anyway, just in in case you do fall into a situation where you have to do that on the public Wi-Fi. And of course, VPNs are handy at home for, you know, getting past things as well. I'm checking. I don't think I have mine installed on my new phone. I got a new phone a couple (laughs) months ago and I haven't installed it. I am disappointed in myself. Yeah. So lazy. (laughs) I'd say you're wrong. But you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there, I mean, because there are VPN clients for phones and laptops. And, you know, if you get a VPN, if you pay for a VPN service, you should probably make sure uh, before you, you throw down the money on it that it does allow you to do, you know, a number of computers, a number of, number of smartphones, and even your, your border router. So you can do your whole network at home to VPN as well. And, and if you're... And if you have a corporate laptop, you should have an always-on VPN for your for your laptops anyway, so that yeah. you don't even have to worry about this stuff. They fire up their laptop, and the v- VPN is forced to come on before they can do anything anyway. Yeah, you know, because that's always something that I've been worried about in hotels. That's something that always bugged me, and I never went back and checked, was the SMTP thing. Because I'd, like, boot up my laptop, and the first thing it would do is go check for email before I could turn on the VPN. Because if I didn't have an always-on VPN... Mm-hmm. I was always like, huh, so they could, so the attacker, if they, if this was not configured correctly, they could get that 
initial download of emails. Yeah. Well, a lot of email servers now at least have the option, if not default, to secure mail. So yeah. it may not have been a problem, but to well, be hopefully, sure. hopefully work a lot of that. Well, if they had thought about it, your VPN would have already turned on, not been able to check. Or well, that. the SMTPS, SMTPS, I meant. Yeah, but I'm saying that, you know, it wouldn't be an issue if you had them always on VPN. That's what, that's all I meant. That's fair. All right. Well, that looks like that's all the articles we have for today. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 